0: Hello and welcome to the History Film Club. I'm Alex von Tonsman, a historian and screenwriter. And I'm
1: Hannah Gregg, a historian and a consultant to film and television.
0: And Hannah, we've got our very exciting applicant to join the History Film Club this week. We've got Dr Jacqueline
1: Riding. Dr Jacqueline Riding is a historian and an author. She's written books on Jacobites and Joseph Highmore. And her latest work, Hogarth, Life in Progress... Is an exciting new biography of the 18th century artist um, William Hogarth, who's one of my favourites. But Jackie is also a very experienced and respected consultant to film, including Mike Lee's award-winning Mr Turner from 2014 and more recently Peterloo, which was out in 2018. So welcome, Jackie, to the History Film Club. Thank you very much. I once saw an interview with Mike Lee where he said how excellent it was to work with you Jackie and you know to have a historian on hand with all his films and so I wanted to ask you what is it like to work with Mike Lee? Um, it's, uh, everyone describes it as
2: falling off a cliff. <laughs> 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 all the actors do, everybody who works on the films say that and it's in the nicest possible way. It's. It's a, you know a roller coaster ride. It's falling off a cliff. It's because uh, the significance from a kind of from a historian's point of view and art historian, obviously for, for Mr. Turner, is that you start working on Mike Lee's films right from the beginning. So you're there for two years basically working on the film, um, and so you're bedded in very early on, and uh, and of course therefore you're there for all the discussions about narrative um scenes uh, character uh, dialogue you know you're there right the way through it so the reason why it's a roller coaster ride is because because of the the nature of how mike creates his films which is very organic and um it's a collaborative affair etc but it does involve lots of highs lows <laughs> and uh, and everything in between
0: it's funny because i mean that's such it must be such a privilege to spend two years doing it because so often, I think, you know, historical consultants are called in right at the end and then they sort of say something like, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of uh, of the wonderful U571, you know, can you prove that the Americans actually sort of found the Enigma machine? And you're like, uh, no. <laughs> so, so to get involved kind of uh, super early like that must be brilliant. I mean, you know, you must really get to kind of help help shape the look and feel of the
2: film. Yes, it's kind of you're kind of crucial to it and Mike uh, in various interviews says that I was his second or is his second brain. And and you are there to feed information, to make observations, to make suggestions, to respond to notes if you're asked for notes during the 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 rehearsal that then turns into the honing and then the filming of a scene. You're there on set the whole time with the actors, with Mike, um whilst the individual scenes are being created. Um, so you're really there, you're right there at the coalface. Um and and then you're feeding into it. But of course, you know, there might be various dramatic or cinematic reasons or narrative reasons why what actually happened, as far as we know, may not be correct for the film. And I suppose, you know, it's the big discussion about um you know the difference between history and historical fiction or historical filmmaking or filmmaking that's embedded in history the is embedded in history is it is as mike says it's not a documentary it's a movie and it's a an artwork and it's a creative endeavor so it's that uh so you know if i said to mike i don't think that happened he'd say great but uh this is what we're doing you know so and that's <laughs> and that's you know you can't say fairer than that and, and as a historian, you kind of say, right, that's it. I, I did my job. And, um, and then it's up to Mike um, and Tim Spall as Turner or whoever to decide how they want to proceed. But, of course, the important thing is that it's all based on knowledge. The decisions that are made, as far as one can do it with the time that you've got, is the decisions are made based on, on knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I think that adds a greater sense of authenticity, depth, and
1: so on to the to the to the result yeah that is always my mantra it should be choices not mistakes that are driving you know kind of the construction of historical drama but I'm curious about the kind of Mike Lee process in terms of does the the plotting and the narrative structure come entirely through rehearsals or does he have a a sort of arc that he's presenting in the rehearsal room is it all completely kind of improvised and organic and just coming out of everybody's well they
2: it's that's an excellent question because of course there's no script until the very end um, the script is written um and you know for certain film for film festivals you had to submit a script um so that exists but right at the end he mike will have a general idea because past the research process right at the beginning with me for example would be reading books about turner working out when you're going to start the film are you going to have a little turner for flashbacks answer mm-hmm. no Um, Are you, you know, are you going to end with his death or are you going to focus on a particular thing that happens, important event in Turner's life or, you know, you get those, you work out the general sort of sense of the film, the arc, the big arc of the film um, in advance and then you, then you start to hone in on which characters support Turner as the hero of the film Um, and not every person who was involved in Turner's life could possibly be in the film, Mr. Turner. So you have to be quite, you know, quite relatively clever about characters where you get bang for your buck. Are they there for the entire period of his life? So the audience recognise this person as a friend or a foe of Turner's. Um, you know, you you sort of build up that picture, and that happens over the research period, um, in advance of the rehearsal period, which is when you've cast a majority of the characters, and they start coming to the rehearsal. This is not anywhere near the set yet. Um, And that's where you start talking to the actors and Mike develops the characters as individual actors and then they start being put together as groups like the Royal academicians or um, Turner's home life, that that little threesome um, of his housekeeper and his father and himself. They start working together as as a group and all that. And that kind of builds up as well. And eventually Mike will present to the crew the sort of general arc, scene by scene, very broadly, of what the film, in his mind's eye, is now going to entail. And of course, as that, as that is all going on, you've got the production team, you know, makeup and hair, clothes, you know, costume, etc. They've all joined the production and are all at the rehearsal space working on, you know, the hero's costume, the this, that, and the other. And it's all being done with you know, everyone together. So, at that point, of course, I can just walk upstairs to where the costume section is, or the you know makeup and hair, or the production design uh section, just walk in and look at their current thinking on locations, set you know set design, you know, and, and make comments on it, or we had group meetings where we'd all come together. And talk through certain scenes and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So in Peterloo, you've got these big production scenes like the House of Lords, the House of Lords debating chamber, for example. You know, we'd all come together in advance and talk through images of the interior of the House of Lords chamber, debating chamber. You know, what are they going to wear? How many Lords do we need? (laughs) All those things are sort of talked about and discussed organically. So by the time we've come to set, obviously we've got the actors, we've got the broad essence of what this scene is gonna do. And then for the first half of the week, say, the actors with Mike, myself, and, and various other rehearsal team people um, start to improvise with, with each other around that broader um, idea of what that scene is intending to do. Um, and then by the middle of the week, say, we've got ourselves a scene with dialogue and so on and then the uh the rest of the crew turn up and hopefully it's filmed and and done so it's a much it's a very interesting process to witness and it's a very detailed very immersive process um and I loved working on it actually adored working on it sometimes it was really hard <laughs> you know uh either you, know, you do have to make decisions very fast even though the process allows for um you know Lots of time to bed in and think about and develop between the various members of the cast and crew and and with Mike obviously and the production and so on but um, but there are moments where you have to make fast decisions on set when something 's about to be shot. You know it could be something as simple as is would they be smoking cigars or pipes in this period, and you suddenly have to make a very quick decision of course, the answer is both <laughs> so um, so you just have to go down to what you think aesthetically speaking. <laughs> looks better and I just went for pipes in this instance. And that was an exterior night scene for uh at Petworth on Mr. Turner. So you know you've got on the one hand you've got the luxury of lots of time and uh you know sort of forum to to discuss and talk about and develop. And then the other extreme is the fast decision that needs to be made on set before the, the scene is shot. But I what I loved about working on the film is that I immediately as I was working with Mike for those two years, I had to then move into writing Jacobites, my first trade book. And I thought there must be ways of implementing the, the knowledge and experience I've just had, animating history in that you know, dramatically three-dimensional way, um, how I could then bring this to bear in writing history. Um, and from the Jacobites' point of view, the, the key thing for me was keeping it in the moment. Like with Mr. Turner and Peter Lou, these are people who don't know they're in a historical drama. They're contemporary people living their lives. And it's trying to make a well-told story fresh. And one way of doing it is, is living in the moment, and everything is happening now. You know, it hasn't already happened. You see what I mean? So using contemporary manuscripts, letters, things written at the time or in the moment, and using those to guide the narrative and obviously the dialogue. Within within the book, I tried that out first with Jacobites, and then, obviously, progressed to Peterloo, which is a book that was written to accompany the film in uh, 2018, and then of course with with Hogarth Life in Progress, I've you know had another go at this technique, and um, uh, hopefully it works.
0: I'm so interested to hear you say that, Jackie, because I always feel very much like I try and kind of you know writing books and writing screenplays i do very much kind of employ the same techniques in both even though they're very different types of writing i think you're absolutely right that actually as historians we can learn quite a lot from filmmakers certainly about you know being immersive telling stories um you know efficiency um yes (laughs) and i I think think editing editing as well because something that drives me mad with history books is the data dump you know, when you just feel like, mm. oh, right, you've done all this research and you've got to prove it. And actually pruning that back to tell the story is is a real skill.
2: I think you're right. It's that um, we're all guilty of it, aren't we? We spent all those days and weeks, if not years, in a blimmin archive and we're damned if we're not going to use that one <laughs> line, that one brilliant quote that we found.
0: <laughs> and then in you the have thing. to listen to kill your darlings. That's what, <laughs> that's <not> what <laughs> you can say. You know? <laughs>
2: But I think it's, it's also that simmering down that inevitably cinema, film, TV has to do. They had to simmer down the character um, to, you know, a hat or, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. simmering it down so that the, the character is all invested in a single hat or an item of clothing, but also just single lines, single actions. You know, you, you can't, you've got to kind of tell the story relatively with, with economy. I think that's what you're meaning by, and it is that sort of condensing, that sort of simmering down to a single truth or a single, uh, you know, uh, 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 just a single fact or a character trait or something like that, a single line that tells the audience or a look that tells the audience what this character is thinking or, you know, what they are, what type of character they are. You can really sort of, again, you can learn a lot from that that condensing of things the way that um, cinema can. Whilst at the same time, of course, they show you the vistas, you know, the grand topography, the, the landscapes, you know, you can also, you can narrow down and you can also pull back in a kind of cinematic way. And I think you can write like that. I mean, I'm, I'm an art historian as well as a historian and my, um, my PhD is in art history. Um, and of course, inevitably, I'm a visual person. You know, in many ways, I think cinematically. I imagine a scene in my head, in my mind's eye, and then I write it down rather than the other way round, if you see what I mean. So I imagine people now, having particularly worked on film, I imagine my characters, whether it's Hogarth or Bonnie Prince Charlie or Flora McDonald, talking to each other, I imagine them in a physical space, sort of talking, and it's sort of, hopefully, hopefully, um, that helps to animate not only the story, but also the interaction between characters. And I do call my books, I call them a cast. And like with Hogarth, with the, the Hogarth Life in Progress, Again, you can't possibly mention every person Hogarth ever met or every friend he had. You've got to narrow it down to a cast that is useful to you to tell the story you want to tell about Hogarth. And in many ways, you know, that book is my version of Hogarth. Um, I don't believe in definitive biographies of anybody. I think everybody has something different to say about a particular individual. Um, And, of course, you know, as time moves on, things are discovered and people think differently about historical characters. So there's always something fresh and new to say, I think, Um, even on a character that feels like their story is well-tilled. I think there's always something fresh and new to say. But Hogarth is most certainly my version of Hogarth, and um, I'm unapologetic (laughs) (laughs) about that.
1: It's really inspiring to hear you talk about how working in film influences your... Your writing as well because I think it's very easy for historians to sort of think about well, what can historians do for film and how should film do history better but actually it does come back the other way and and you do mm. learn a lot about storytelling from watching filmmakers work and how to prioritize the story and plot it and make your characters work and and um, I'm hoping I'm going to start writing a new book that somehow I'm going to have organically learned all of these skills. Of course, it might not happen at all. And there's going to be a massive data dump in the second <laughs> half of my book. As <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> you know, I am the historian through and through. But um, but it's always, I always find it really interesting to to talk to people who have been working in both of those fields, filmmaking and writing, about how they influence each other in that way. And obviously yeah. the Mike Leak films are so deeply collaborative but um, mm. it's a different experience anyway. Um, mm. I sort of have an image in my head now of him not having a script, you know, and just taking you to film festivals and saying, I don't have a script, but I have Jack Dot's Jacqueline writing. And everyone's <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> fine. <laughs> Your film is made, Mike Lee. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> so, and Jackie's just there at the front of the room. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so,
2: yes. Now, here's how it happened. Yeah, yes. the uh, the, actually, if you're interested, actually you know, a little plug here, not that I'm involved in it, but um, there's a new book just about to come out in October called Mike Lee on Mike Lee, edited by Amy Raphael. It's uh, published by Faber. And that's Mike talking about every single one of his films. And if anyone enjoys Mike Lee films, but also enjoys the process of filmmaking and learning about you know, how people make films. Um, Actually, this this book has just been re-released because it's including Mr. Turner and Peter Liu. So um, I actually feature in it. I'm in the index for the first time in my life. I know. (laughs) For the first time in my life, I'm actually in the index of a book. Anyway, but if people are interested, listening and are interested in Mike in particular, then this book is just about to come out and I think it's
0: well worth a read. If you're enjoying History Film Club, please join us at www.patreon.com forward slash History Film Club. You'll get a free badge and various other exciting goodies depending on your level of membership. See you then. But well, I think I think that
1: book. I think people will be really interested in that because people are fascinated in terms of how films are actually made and you know not everyone gets an insight into that so I think that might Lee book is going to be a great read um, for mm. people.
0: So do you see I mean Hogarth himself an incredibly dramatic character? I mean, mm. you know, could we see him on the screen do you think sometime soon? Well
2: we, thank you for asking that question, Alex. Uh, uh, basically, I I sort of wrote Hogarth in, to an extent, which is where it shifts slightly more towards film than normal in my other books. Um, I did write it with a view or with a mind to some form of film being made from it. And the structure of the book is that um, Hogarth in, in 1732 went on, of peregrination, um, a pilgrimage from Covent Garden pub, to the Isle of Sheppey, and he took with with four other friends and they do absolutely nothing of any importance whatsoever, apart from getting drunk and eating and throwing horse muck around and just just having general fun for five days, all the way travelling all the way to Sheppey and back again. And I took that little journey, little inconsequential journey and turned it into eight interludes so the book is structured, it has a prologue, and then it has interlude one, which is the starting of the peregrination from uh, Somerset House on the Thames down to Billingsgate, just past the old London Bridge. And then, and then chapter one introduces, is much more biographical, kind of traditionally biographical. And the whole book is structured in this way. And in my mind's eye, again, <laughs> um, I was rather thinking that that the peregrination itself becomes the spine of, let's say, a script. And in a way, the book tells you that you can use the peregrination to then bounce off into other aspects of Hogarth's life. It could become quite complicated as a result, but it's sort of, I'm hoping there's enough there that might encourage or inspire uh, somebody to do, you know, kind of like a road movie. Yes. <laughs> but it's, but it's five, <laughs> five chaps in wigs. You know, going down the Thames—it's a bit like Three Men in a Boat. It's got that kind of charm and quality to it, and you get to be with Hogarth for five days with four of his friends, and uh, and it's there's something desperately charming and unhogarthian in a way because he's just hanging out and being you know enjoying himself and not getting angry at somebody who doesn't understand him and his art and all that sort of thing. Um, But it's also a sort of charming drift through a part of England, which um, you don't normally talk about in the context of Hogarth. And is not that often seen in the context of historical movie making, um, uh, you know, Rochester, I know it's to do with Dickens and stuff, but not from the 18th century mm. point of view, you know, Chatham Dockyard, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so it has a, it has a grandness and then an also an intimacy. It's a sort of chamber piece, but it has grand opera, <laughs> sort of interlaced through it and uh, and hopefully an aspect of it might inspire somebody to to write a script
0: oh well come on any producers listening snap it up <laughs> yeah, we've
1: got a structure we've got locations that we know will work <laughs> exactly um, so you must have fantasy cast it in your head did you Jackie who's Hogarth when you were writing
2: I do uh, somebody actually asked me this and I said the old Hogarth I love Robert Pugh I don't know if you know the actor Robert Pugh. Fabulous, got a fabulous, fruity voice. He was in Master yeah. and Commander. Oh, yeah. You know, he's, uh, he's, just, he's just such a lovely actor. He really, I think, has the look of the old and the cantankerousness, but the sort of gentleness, that wonderful combination of Hogarth, um, as the older Hogarth. But the younger Hogarth, um, Mark Stanley, who was recently Henry VIII um, in the Anne Boleyn, recently. No, yeah. yep. I met I met him through Mr. Turner. He played Clarkson Stanfield. He's such a I think he's got the real range and he's got the humour and he's got the range. Whoever plays Hogarth has to have you know multi layered, they've got to have range. <laughs> There's no two ways. And um but it's a it's a character that somebody really could get their teeth into. Um well, and anyway, let's hope let's hope somebody somebody takes a fancy to it. But um
0: and for mm-hmm. our listeners, and um, you might recognise both Robert Pugh and Mark Stanley from Game of Thrones. They were both in correct. It. So, <laughs> so mm-hmm. fans of that might might know exactly who we're talking about. So, Jackie, we also ask everyone who applies to be a member of the History Film Club to nominate a particular film or television production that they love for our club library. So, what would you like to nominate? How
2: strict are you?
0: on <laughs> well, what are you going to
2: say? <laughs> <You'd> be persuaded. <laughs> The thing is, I, I, well, I'm sure everybody has the same problem. I thought one, I couldn't think of, what I've got. I've got two. Am I allowed two? They're sort of connected.
0: Yes, Ooh, you can suggest. Try them out
2: me. on us. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll try them out. If I get kicked out of the club, <laughs> I, I'll, my life will have no meaning. Um, okay, so the two are the duellists. Uh, Ridley Scott's 1977 film about uh, Napoleonic War hussars dueling their way through from 1800 to 1816 via the retreat from Moscow, etc., etc. It was Weirdly um, Scott's first feature film after doing the Hovis ads and, and I, it was one of the earliest films I sort of, beyond Ben-Hur and the fall of the Roman Empire and, you know, agony and ecstasy and, and all that kind of thing, which I remember watching as a child. It's one of those films I registered as being just loving because I was a great fan of Sharp as well. And I just loved, I thought, *The Duelist well, is just a spectacular film. Um, and then my partner to that would be master and commander. Um, the, uh, 2003 Peter Weir film. I, I'd, I'd dovetail those two.
1: That's, they're
0: the two I'd love. To be fair, I think they'd make a pretty good double bill. They mm. would,
1: they would in that, you know, I'm an 18th century historian, so I definitely happy to have some screenings of those. Um, and I love this and actually what i like about the duelists is that i don't actually really like dueling uh, like when we have no it period dramas it's not actually as exciting as everyone thinks it's going to be <laughs> like, <laughs> so, but you know people don't really often die and nothing very exciting actually happens in history mm. duels often and um but the, you know that there's a film that actually manages to make the whole concept um thrilling and then master and commander again i like because who knew that just sitting in the corner of the boat could be so interesting? <laughs> and yes, like, I mean, the, the, the filmmaking challenge of that, you know, them just sitting in the corner of the cabin most of the time. Um, but but it really works, you know, so, yeah.
2: They're, they're sort of human beings under extreme circumstances, aren't they? They're sort of in extreme situations. Because uh, I love the duelists because, of course, nobody really knows why these duels are going on. Nobody understands. The Harvey Keitel, who's this sinister creature, is just hell-bent on effectively killing Keith Carradine. Um, it's hence why the duels just carry on going throughout the, the broader picture of the Napoleonic Wars. I also love the fact that sort of um, it's a beautiful film. The costumes are just drop dead. And I love the fact that you actually move from the kind of fashion point of view, both military and civilian, you move from 1800 through to post-Waterloo. And you see the, uh, the way that the costumes adapt you know how they change over the course of that 15 years it's so cleverly done but it's also about you know obsession it's about the collapse of an empire you know again it's this big big ideas big history but it's also about these two men and and the way that they're fighting it out life and death i find battlefields very particularly poignant because you know that right there somebody somewhere was fighting for their life and I find it just, it's just, they're just naturally sort of spooky, but, uh, but sort of soulful places, uh, whether it be Culloden or, you know, Waterloo or whatever the battlefield is, there is something inherently touching about mm-hmm. it. And, I, mm-hmm. but I, and then with um, with Master and Commander, it's, it is, as you say, it's, like a, it's, a, it's a little world, isn't it? And how these people survive, despite the expanse of ocean around them, it's how do these people survive? on this tiny boat Um, and the other thing i like with both of them is the use of music i think the way that the characters are developed are really clever and with master and commander you get that fabulous mix of that the kind of high octane battle scenes with the gentleness when they go to the galapagos islands and then you get that mix of warfare and science and you know natural history and and i just think it's such a wonderful film i know people who hate the galapagos island bit of master and commander because they think it's boring it just suddenly becomes very sort of laid back and you know (laughs) and they want the high octane battle scenes all the time but i think it even from a cinematic point of view and a kind of narrative point of view it you need that downtime in order to ratchet back up again the kind of the battle scene so i think the whole tempo of that film the way it's It's such a beautifully made film, but I think music is something, I noticed people complained about soaring strings and classical music, and I completely agree with that. I I think that also you need to name uh, and celebrate where people get it right. And I think films like the first Far From the Madding Crowd, the 1967 John Schlesinger, the way they use folk music is just beautiful, beautifully Um, used throughout the film and adds an extra layer about the rural community that that story um, exists within, with the narrative. Um, Peterloo, I am going to do a shout out on Peterloo because I think the, again, the music, um, Gary Yershon, who was the uh, composer for Peterloo and Mr Turner, but in Peterloo he uses this wonderful sort of um, folk music but also hymns, the kind of Wesleyan hymns and so on are used, and I think that's, I love clever, uh, layered use of music as opposed to just simply storing strings because there's a big emotional moment, let's have the whole symphony orchestra burst into life. I think if you use music sparingly and cleverly, it definitely brings something, you know, another layer, wonderful
1: layer to uh, to the film. Well, I think you've made a compelling case for the dualist and master and commander. What do you think, Alex? Can we yeah. pop both in? We're
0: delighted. Both in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you also,
1: you know, touched on some of the things that irritate people as well. And of course, our other question to all applicants is is whether you have a particular pet hate, something that we should try and um, exclude from the club if possible. Is there something that you'd like to nominate? I <laughs> mean,
2: the thing is, I guess when you work in film, you realise. There's so much effort goes into the film, whether you like the film or not. You sort of give everybody credit from the get-go. That's not what you want, though, is it? Uh, you want something, a little.
1: I, I well, you that... can nominate people <laughs> complaining about films if you yes. like.
2: <laughs> no, I think people have... You know, you're able. As long as you critique in a kind and knowledgeable way, I don't mind. One of my favourite films is Seven Samurai. I have no idea if that's authentically 16th century Japan. I just love the characters that you know the 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 narrative, the dialogue. And I think that if you're going to have modern dialogue, you just stick to it, you know, like with Marie Antoinette, say, or Ridicule, you know, the other French Mm. uh, film about the 18th century French court, cleverly mixes. What you're looking at is very, you know, 18th century, but the dialogue and the mannerisms might be more up to date. And I think you just stick to it. It's, I think it's clever. And I think it brings something fresh. I think what gets me is when people do that, they, and, but they, or they try and do something that's authentically 18th century in some way, and then suddenly some word will suddenly fire out, or some very 21st century idea suddenly appears in the middle of it. And that's, I find jarring. I find that jarring. I kind of think you go, you've got to decide which side you're going to go, which, which way you're going to go, and then just have the, you know, just stick to it. Just, just do that. Because when you're watching these films, you get used to the world that's been created and if something suddenly jarringly sort of pings out that's that's when i find it a bit a bit upsetting
0: <laughs> yeah i think um, right, i think it's it's a big challenge always for screenwriters yeah. but i think it's really important to have a consistent voice um and yeah to mm. pick i agree pick your style um there yeah. are certainly some quite bad examples one which is known to be extremely bad is uh John Wayne's film of Genghis Khan in which he plays Genghis Khan which is written in the most ludicrously over archaic dialogue I remember the bit that really made me laugh was when he meets his mother and he says I greet you my mother which is literally like <laughs> hi mum like, you know yes, mean, just, this is well, not actually, I all. really
1: want to watch that now though
0: maybe. <laughs> it is well you know there's a drinking game in it for sure but you know, yeah yeah,
2: yeah yeah I mean yeah. no I think you're you're absolutely right it's sort of I mean, with just going back to the duelist, just before I came, to, if if anybody wants to just get a taste of the duelists before they commit themselves to the entire film, there's a clip of the second duel on YouTube, it's only four minutes long, and these, this is a beautiful landscape with a, a rustic farm and some beautiful trees, it's fabulously framed shot, and into the shot gallop these guys with full Napoleonic kit, you know, hussars, in the full gorgeous kit of a hussar, French hussar. They get off their horses and they—they they, all the seconds meet together. And they go morning, 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 <laughs> as, if, as if they're turning up to—I don't know—to just plough the field or something. Day at the office, and yeah. Day at the office, and then they say, "Right, are you ready?" And, they, and and it's done in quite a modern. They've—they're in very modern men, but they look, and I think that can help to bring to make the audience think they're watching real people in real time, who are contemporary, not ye oldie. 18th century hussars they're actually modern people as they would have been at the time when this action is is set so that kind of dialogue does help i think it kind of but you've got to as you say alex you've got to stick to it if, you, if that's the way you're going to do it you've it's that it's got to be consistent throughout
0: yeah okay we're putting uh inconsistent dialogue. clunky dialogue yeah, clunky <Yeah>. Well, thank you very much for that, Jackie. I think uh, on that basis, Dr Jacqueline Riding, we're very pleased to welcome you to the History Film Club Hub. As oh, a whole thank another. you. Well, congratulations, Ray. Ray. <laughs> um, we love to offer our new members a drink from the club bar. Now, the club bar, of course, can serve any drink, modern or historical, um, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, um, whatever people choose. Um, so what can we get you? Uh, i can't look it's i've
2: got to do hogarth haven't i so it's got to be it's got to be a pint of beer with a gin chaser
0: oh blimey okay wow it's gonna be a big night (laughs) amazing we will get that from the bar and thank you thank you very much jacqueline riding for a fantastic membership application for the history film club and thank you for listening You've been listening to the History Film Club Alex von Tunzelman, Hannah Gregg
2: and Jackie Riding. The producer was Nat Tapley and the assistant producer was Abby Roberts.
0: For badges, exclusive content and competitions only available to Patreons go to www.patreon.com forward slash History Film Club.